0: Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Show, show number 11.
1: We were kind of in this place where we thought we were saving because we were doing the 401k match that our company was doing, which was, I think it was like 5% or somewhere around there, 5% or 6%. And so we said, oh, we're doing that. So we're being responsible. So let's just have fun with the rest of our money. And we didn't realize that what it was turning into was that we were creating a lifestyle that was really not very sustainable. And it was also something where a lot of our friends were latching on to us because of that lifestyle.
2: It's time for a new American dream, one that doesn't involve working in a cubicle for 40 years, barely scraping by. Whether you're looking to get your financial house in order, invest the money you already have, or discover new paths for wealth creation, you're in the right place. This show is for anyone who has money or wants more. This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast.
0: How's it going, everybody? I'm Scott Trench here with my co-host, Miss Mindy Jensen. How are you doing today, Mindy?
3: Scott, I am having an awesome day. How are you doing today?
0: I am doing fantastic. We just heard from one of the people I've been most excited to have on this podcast in uh, Joel from Financial 180. And I think you and I both met Joel maybe mid-January of 2018 at a very nerdy, very awesome personal finance camp down in Florida. But I was so impressed with Joel because Joel is one of those people who came from a background of Dual high income, high spending, and was unable to accumulate wealth and I think there's a lot of listeners out there that may come from a similar position where they've got that you know income of seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year or more, and then maybe the two of them in the sense of two spouses are working, but yet still can't seem to get ahead and we've had so many perspectives in the show, like Sarah Wilson with her you know low income and ability to pay off debt. This really is an episode for that other end of the spectrum with the high income unable to get ahead. And I think they just have a really fantastic approach to how they were able to cut back on their expenses, build up hundreds of thousands of dollars in assets in four to five years and finish out the journey to retirement.
3: Yeah. His story is fantastic because it shows you that you can do this just because you haven't always been frugal doesn't mean you can't start. And I think at one point he even says, if I can do this, anybody can do this. Mm-hmm. You know, They were spending Six figures. They were spending more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. That takes some effort.
0: Yeah, it really Quite is. Frankly. You know, I don't know like how I would spend ten thousand dollars a month, but a lot of people do that. And a lot of people are kind of stuck in that pattern. And that's where I think Joel and his wife was until they did a financial one eighty. The <laughs> name of their blog is FI one eighty. And we're able to transition out of that and begin to really accumulate a lot, again, a lot of wealth, find meaning. And he really enjoys his day. He actually just retired from his job after really aggressively starting the journey in about 2012, 2013. He just finished in November of 2017. He's been retired for a few months.
3: Yes, and what makes this story so great is that they were going full speed ahead in the opposite direction. They actually mm-hmm. did a complete 180 starting from, I think he said they had about $10,000 in credit card debt. So not enormous, but definitely starting from a negative spot. And now he's retired in five years. Yes, they were making a high income, but he went from nothing to retired in five years. It's yep. totally doable. And ugh, we shouldn't tell his story for him. We do this every week,
0: Scott. Yeah. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to Nerd Wallet.
3: Scott's right
0: help you make it happen with a killer travel
3: card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com.
0: NerdWallet, finance smarter.
3: As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply.
2: This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
3: The easiest way to collect rent? Rent at. RentApp is a seamless, secure, free payment tool for small rental property owners like you and me. Built by a team of FinTech veterans behind Square and Cash app, RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit rent directly into your account. Landlords love RentApp for its unbeatable convenience. Isn’t it time you made rent collection easier? RentApp, The free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app/landlord. That's rent.app/landlord. I'm so excited to bring him in. Joel, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me, guys.
3: Thank you for coming on the show.
0: So Joel, you have an incredible story where you, it sounds like you kind of came from this position of very high spending and were able to kind of reverse that. So can you just start from the very beginning and talk about what was life like a few years ago for you before you got interested in the concept of financial freedom?
1: Yeah. So I guess the place to start would be 2007. So 2007, my wife and I, she was my girlfriend at the time. We just graduated from uh, university and we had our offer letters for our very first job. We didn't even have the job yet. We had our offer letters. And so we said, all right, we're adults now. The first thing we need to do is go buy a house. And so we went and we bought a house in 2007, which was not very good timing. We bought this house, we moved in and we were you know, kind of plain grown-up. So we said, okay, it's time to furnish this house. So we went and got about $10,000 worth of furniture on credit. And we just filled out this house. And we kind of started living this life where we never really had money before. We were college kids. And now we did. And we kind of were like, man, we can do anything and everything. So we started just slowly increasing our lifestyle. And it was gradual at first, but it was, you know, we weren't good at cooking. So we started going out to eat once a day, twice a day. We started paying for all kinds of services for things. So this would be like food prep service, food delivery service. We'd have water service, alarm service, lawn service. It just started adding up and adding up. But I didn't think it was weird at the time, right? Because a lot of my coworkers did the same thing. And and so it's just this gradual creeping up and up. And this continued over the years. And it got to a point where 2012, we actually spent in the six figure range on stuff. So over $100,000 spent in 2012 on stuff. And that was a bad, that was like the pinnacle of our spending where it just got a little bit out of control. 2012, the year that you got married by chance, or what year was that? So that was 2013. We got married and that was a quite elaborate wedding. It was wonderful. And don't get me wrong. I don't regret any of it. It was a beautiful day, but we did things in such a way that were a bit extreme. So we got married at Disney World, which was awesome, but expensive. And everything was always new, over the top, new house, new cars, expensive wedding, expensive honeymoon. We just had this thing where we were just spending money because we could. And I think a little of it was we want to get, you know, what we thought was the most out of life. And so that's kind of where we were. We started to realize, though, through this time that something might be wrong. Like we weren't really getting the fulfillment out of the stuff that maybe we were looking for. We weren't finding the purpose that we were looking for. But it wasn't until 2013. I can't remember if it's 13 or 14, but my wife was in a very serious car accident. And that's kind of the catalyst. That was the awakening that kind of Made us aware of a direction in our lives,
3: okay, so you just went through like twenty things I want to talk about, yeah <laughs> uh, congratulations on hitting a six figure spend. yay, oh, for boy. you. <laughs> Did you throw a big party? woohoo uh, no, we didn't so know what-
1: at the time. we honestly didn't track our spending. We had no idea that that's what it was years later that I realized that that's what we had spent that year and it, it was like the jaw dropping and hitting the floor
3: yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I might've hit that a couple of times, but that was while I was doing these like major flips and you know, you got to spend $100,000 at Home Depot. So <laughs> what do you do for work? Because you're spending six figures. I'm assuming you're making more than six figures or you know, so, some sort of like, yeah, are you so, going into debt for this?
1: So I can dive into that. My wife and I are uh, software engineers, or at least that's okay. what I did while I was employed. And we're not making... West Coast style salaries. So we got our jobs right out of college. We were making about 50000 each. And then that kind of climbed over the years towards uh, right under the six-figure mark before I quit my job this past November, which I guess we'll get into soon. But that's kind of the spread. So we weren't necessarily going into a lot of debt. We were lucky about that. I think at our worst, we might have had maybe $10,000 of credit card debt. What we were just doing was just spending everything that came in. 2012, we actually did have a negative savings rate. So that was our worst year.
3: Did you ever consciously think about saving money? Oh, we should put some money away for the future. We should invest. Or was it just all spend, spend, spend? Because I was a young adult a thousand years ago. And I also had friends who were young adults who wanted to go out to dinner and go to the bars and just go hang out and go to concerts and I was living in Chicago at the time. We have like 27 sports teams. So you want to go see the team play and, you know, it just adds up, but it's not like this conscious, how can I throw money out of my pockets fast enough? It's more like I just want to do what everybody else is doing.
1: Yeah. So we were kind of in this place where we thought we were saving because we were doing the 401k match that our company was doing, which was, I think it was like 5% or somewhere around there, five or 6%. And so we said, oh, we're doing that. So we're being responsible. So let's just have fun with the rest of our money. And we didn't realize that what it was turning into was that we were creating a lifestyle that was really not very sustainable. And it was also something where a lot of our friends were latching on to us because of that lifestyle, which was a little unfortunate. So, for example, we would be the type to tell people, yeah, come on, come on out downtown with us. We'll buy you a drink. We'll buy you a round or we'll you know, we'll get the appetizers or we'll get this and that. And it got to the point where, yeah, the spending was just really, really not sustainable, really, really unsustainable. So. I wish I
3: had a statistic for how many people actually invest in their 401k because while your story is not one that makes my heart sing, you're still investing in your 401k, which is a lot more than a lot of people are doing.
1: Yeah, and I tell a lot of people, like we were, in a lot of ways, we were very lucky. We did not come into our adult life with a lot of debt. We both had prepaid college, thanks to our parents, which was really nice. So we weren't starting with large debt in student loans. I think the most debt we had, like I said, was that $10,000 in credit card, which was relatively easy for us to turn around. But it was just a matter of just every dollar that came in went immediately right back out. We both had our vices. Mine was electronic stores. So I would go to Best Buy every Friday when I was feeling bored after work. And I'd come home with a new Few hundred dollar Wi Fi gizmo. That was my thing. I was buying game systems. I didn't even have games for them. I just wanted them. You know, it's just this idea of all these gadgets. People would come to my house and just be like, oh my gosh, it's a Wi Fi crazy zone in there because I'd have 20 gadgets. I had the lights that would turn on and off with your cell phone and the thermostat and the all the home automation stuff. And I just loved <laughs> toys. I always had the newest phones, I always had the newest computers. That was kind of my area of spending. My wife's was what we call the Target black hole, where you go to Target and then your money goes into a black hole and you don't know where it goes. And then at the end of the month, you're like, how did I spend six hundred dollars at Target? What was it on? And we wouldn't be able to really like pin down. Like, what did you buy? Oh, I don't know. It's just Target. You just go in and you just, you know, buying stuff. And yeah,
3: uh, sorry. Your wife's not special with the Target black hole. That's everybody who walks in and
1: (laughs) I should qualify though. She's not here to defend herself right now, but she was always the more moderate one through this financial one eighty. So back when I was super spendy, she was a little bit more well-grounded. She was a little bit more moderate. And even then on the flip side, when I became extreme saver, pushing, you know, an 85% savings rate, she was the one to pull me back and say, this is getting a little extreme. So she's very even keeled, which is a good thing to have in a relationship. Somebody who's on both sides able to kind of keep it a more steady footing. So I'm just the crazy one.
0: <laughs> Going through all this with, you know, during this period where you're spending over six figures and spending everything that you have, how were you
1: feeling? Were you living the high life that everyone imagines or what were you fulfilled? No, no, not at all. So actually, I didn't realize it at the time, but things were actually getting more stressful because of this unsustainable lifestyle that we had created. So we had a work schedule called a 980 where you get every other Friday off of work. And so we were traveling every other Friday, but a lot of the travel wasn't, you know, international fun travel. These were weekend trips. And so we would travel to go see friends and family that didn't want to come visit us. And so there was one point where we flew to the West Coast to see a friend for a long weekend, flew back to the East Coast. And I remember getting out of the airport from a red eye and driving straight to work without going to sleep and just immediately getting to work, like no sleep right off of a plane and just thinking to myself, this is crazy. What am I doing? So there was this kind of sense of we were trying to find fulfillment. We thought. That buying all these things and create and having all these toys, going out to any restaurant we wanted all the time, being able to see any friend or family, you know, instantly just drop a hat and go visit them. We thought that this was going to bring happiness, but it, it really wasn't. And we were kind of at this point in our lives. This was when I was getting close to thirty years old, and I was not really fulfilled. I was stressed out at work, and not really finding a meaning, a purpose to it all. It was kind of just like you do this grind, you work hard, and then you get out and you have a few hours on the weekends to maybe play with the toys that you bought. And that was like the extent of it. And so it was almost like it was not fulfilling in any way, but we needed a push to kind of wake us up. And and that didn't happen until my wife's car accident.
0: So can you tell us about that car accident and what happened with your mindsets and what actions did you take in the aftermath of it?
1: Yeah, so a few months after we got married. So it was around the same time that a friend actually pointed us to the Mr. Money Mustache blog. So I had been introduced to Pete's blog before the car accident happened, but it didn't really catch with me. I kind of read the blog and I was like, this is interesting. But it just kind of was like, that's cool. You know, bookmark, maybe I'll read that later. So then a few months later, my wife gets in this horrible car accident down in South Florida. She was visiting some family. And a sheriff's officer ran a red light at full speed and did not have his sirens on and just completely T-boned her. And she was knocked out. The car was totaled. She luckily didn't have very serious injuries, just a few months of physical therapy, but she was okay. You know, it wasn't anything too serious, but it just got to this point though where we started thinking to ourselves, like, you know, it was such an awakening that moment. We were talking to each other the Monday after the accident. And she's like, I need to go back to work, but I'm not ready to go back to work. Like, I'm not mentally in that place. And, you know, we started talking like, man, work stinks. You know, like, if we just started <laughs> talking, like, you kind of have this realization, wow, we are kind of slaves to the paycheck and slaves to the work schedule. And so during her few days off that we had, I took some time off with her and we started reading that Mr. Money Mustache, like, together. And that's when we kind of realized, like, wow, we could totally changed the way that we're living our lives. And so that was kind of the awakening. There's a book Dominic Cortuccio wrote, "The Design Your Life. And he talks about this concept of an awakening that is intentional and unintentional. And so for us, this was an unintentional awakening. It happened at a good time for us before we had dug ourselves in too deep. And it just completely changed the way we thought about money. And so we knew within a week of that accident that we needed to change things. And so the insurance company gave us a $10,000 check, which was the depreciated value of her car. Her car was more than twice that when she bought it new just a few years earlier. But we decided instead of buying a second car that we were going to try to be a one car household and put that money into Vanguard and kind of use that as the catalyst, you know, the $10,000 that's just enough to get in their admiral share, you know, VTSAX. And so we used that as like the catalyst to push us forward on what was a new lifestyle for us.
0: That investment doesn't seem to have worked out, huh? It
1: worked well. <laughs> I tell you, I'm super happy we made the change that we did. And it wasn't a, an easy 180. And as we'll probably discuss, like it's slow and steady and gradual, but your happiness grows as your savings grow in the bank. So it's really kind of crazy how that works.
3: So what was your first step? You and your wife just, okay, we're going to be financially independent. So you got the check from the $10,000 check from the insurance company. What did you do after you deposited that in the VTSX is the index fund from yeah. Vanguard, correct? The total Just U.S., for, yep. It's for people who don't know. So what did you do after that? So now you're a single car family.
1: So at the time we lived, we still had a horrible commute, right? So our house was probably a 40-minute drive from work. So every morning we would read a Mr. Money Mustache article together out loud in the car on the drive to work. And we would talk about it and we would say, you know, is this something we could improve in our lives? Is there an improvement that we could make? And we kind of eventually turned this into a game where every single month we would aim for at least one improvement in our expenses. And actually at first it was a little faster than that. At first it was like one a week because we had so much room for improvement. (laughs) There was a lot of low hanging fruit. (laughs) But eventually we got to a point and and I have a cool blog post that goes into this in detail where each month we pick one thing and we would just kind of figure out how can we improve our expenses? What can we get rid of in our spending? What's something that we could cancel or something that we could reduce? And so the first few were easy, right? So I had the fastest internet possible. I had like 500 megabits a second back when, you know, this was five years ago. There's no need for this. So I lowered it each month. I would lower it one extra notch just to see if I noticed a difference. And gradually I got to a point where I was down to, you know, the much cheaper plan where the, you know, I was paying a quarter of what I was paying before. And I was still happy with the performance of the internet. We could still watch our movies and whatever that we wanted to do on it. So we kind of took that approach to a lot of things. We canceled cable we moved our cell phones over we eventually got off of our data addiction where we were you know using a ton of cell phone data every month and the biggest one the one that took us the longest was learning how to cook so we actually had to get good at cooking food that we would enjoy right so it's one thing to go spend a bunch of money on groceries and say this is good we're going to spend this instead of going out to eat but if you don't like the food You're going to end up still sneaking in, you know, meals, you know, going out to eat. So it's almost like this boot camp that we went through where it took a few months to actually enjoy one another's cooking and learn how to cook things that uh, (laughs) that we like to eat. It really it really did. It took a while. And, you know, something more complex than like a sandwich or a soup or something, you know, actual good meals. And so that was an adventure we kind of went on together where we had to learn over time. What do we like? What do we not like? And how do we prevent food waste? Because you go buy a bunch of groceries and then you don't know how to efficiently make meals and you're throwing a bunch of it out if it goes bad in a week or two. And that was not quick. That was the better part of a year probably in turning the food situation around.
3: So how did you turn your food situation around? It sounds like neither of you cooked at all before. Very Uh, little. How did you eat as a kid? How did she eat as a kid? I come from a really frugal family, so my life experiences are different, but I grew up, I love to cook. So this is one that really I struggle with to understand, but I know there's a lot of other people who hate to cook too. So how did you learn how to cook?
1: So growing up, basically my parents were frugal by necessity, not by choice. And my mom would cook every night of the week. We would go out to eat maybe once a month. And then maybe once a month we'd go to McDonald's for like a special breakfast or something. And that was the extent of it. So my mom, <laughs> cooked, my mom cooked all the time and she was a good cook. And I took that for granted growing up. You know, I just knew I'd get home from school. She'd say, Joel, go do your homework and dinner would be ready, you know, at six o'clock be on the table. And, you know, I took that for granted. And then, you know, as an adult who just spent the better part of six or seven years eating out twice a day, every day. It was quite a like awakening in that sense. Like, wow, I can't cook. I I, I don't know how to take care of myself. (laughs) You start to realize you don't know how to take care of yourself. And everything that you were doing to get by was relying on your credit card. Oh, I need to go to dry cleaning because I can't do my laundry. So that's credit card. I I don't know how to cook. So I need to go, you know, buy food. That's credit card. And and so you slowly get better at it. I don't know about my wife. She kind of grew up with her grandma living in the house and her grandma's a really good Southern cook. She cooks a lot of good Southern food. And so she probably had wonderful food growing up, I'm sure, but neither one of us really knew that well how to cook. So it was something we had to learn together. And at the same time, while we were learning to cook, we also had to learn how to get good at buying groceries. So if you don't buy groceries, right, you can spend a ton of money, you know, going through that. And so we, we, finally figured out that the choice of grocery store made a huge difference. And we found an Aldi very close to where we live at our new house. And Aldi changed everything. It was half the price from where we were going before, which was a grocery store called Publix. Aldi was half the price. Produce, just everything that you would need, all the necessities. It was like half off. It really made such a difference for us. So that kind of came in hand with you know there's the acquiring the food and then the preparing the food and so we had to get good at both of those things.
0: So how far did you go? How low were you able to get your spending after doing this?
1: Yeah. So over the years, this didn't happen overnight. I think the year after the car accident our spending dropped to maybe 65 or 70,000 from the six-figure mark. The year after that, it dropped I want to say to the mid to upper 40s. And then the year after that, we hit the 30s in our annual spend. And we've been in the 30s ever since. Our most aggressive, at one point, we had an 85% savings rate. That was our most aggressive. And it was a little too extreme, which my wife kind of had to pull me back from the edge because I was going crazy. I was like, OK, new rule. We're not going to go out using the car at all on weekends. Weekends are car free. And that sounds good if you live in a city. But, you know, our house was six miles away from anything that you could walk to. So that was basically just saying weekends are going to be recluse. And that that didn't work well. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't a good strategy. And so I also at one point canceled the Netflix, which she was very unhappy about. So I knew like, OK, that wasn't one that we can do. There was a few <laughs> things where I got in a lot of trouble for that one. There were a few things where we had to just try and see. So I think it's a good exercise to kind of push yourself like too far frugal and then back it off a little bit to kind of learn where your line is because it's different for everybody. So we did that with the gym. We canceled our gym memberships and I'm still okay with that. I have a really cool home gym that I've set up here and I enjoy it. But my wife really missed the fitness classes and kind of the group atmosphere and the motivation she would get from being around other people at the gym. And so we added that spending back in maybe a year later once she realized that that was something that was really important. So once we backed away from that 85%, I think we got to a point where between 70 and 75 was comfortable for us.
3: That's interesting. That's uh, last week we had Liz from Frugal Woods on, and she said the same thing. Once they discovered this like amazing concept of financial independence, they cut out everything. They went bare bones and nothing. And then she's like, yeah, you know what? I need some things back in. I need my seltzer water. I need my yoga classes. But she also turned it into a game. And I'm hearing this a lot with all of these stories that I hear is that we made it a game. We got the low hanging fruit. We made it, you know, there's a lot of really easy changes when you're coming from a position of more spendy that are easy to make that don't hurt so much. You think, oh, I need everything. But then you discover, I don't need everything. And she said, you know, I'm going to make it a game. How can I get yoga so cheap? How can I get yoga free? Oh, I'll just volunteer at the front desk. Have you guys done anything where you alter how you pay for things or how you acquire those things, like trade or anything like that?
1: Yeah, so we've been getting better at you know thrift shops. That was something that took us a while to discover, like you don't need to buy brand new clothes. We're still, you know, just underpants getting into that. Yeah, yep, underpants are good (laughs) to get at retail, but we started getting into that. And then a lot of it was just, you know, figuring out like how to wait instead of that impulse of I need to buy this right now. So, Liz talked about her 72 hour rule where she makes a list, she writes it down, she waits to see. So, I find that waiting can give you the time to see, well, one, do you really want it? But then two, is there a better way to get it? Can you get it from a friend? And so recently I wanted to get a new computer monitor for my office. And, you know, you can go to Best Buy and get one that's pretty decent for like 250 bucks, which doesn't seem like that much. But I said to myself, you know, I've got this cool thread on WhatsApp with like 10 of my friends that are like local in town. And so I just shouted out on that. I said, Hey, does anybody actually have a monitor lying around their house that they're not using that maybe they want to get rid of or sell to me? And sure enough, my buddy had a really nice one, 1080p, super nice monitor. And I was like, what do you want for it? And he's like, I don't know, you know, 40 bucks. I was like, cool, that sounds good. And so, you know, I was able to just take that extra little step, you know, instead of going through the normal, routine, which would normally be, let me go to Best Buy and go swoon over all the shiny new stuff. Now I got to go to my friend's house, hang out with him, get the monitor, bring it back. And I didn't have all the extra packaging. I didn't have all the junk that you have to throw away that goes with it. And it was just a much better way. And you feel like it's getting another life, something that maybe he would have thrown out or something that was just sitting in a closet is now getting utilized. So... So that was one thing that we did. We got creative, though. I mean, at one point, like you said, it is easy at the beginning when everything's low hanging fruit. But then when you get to the point where you've kind of optimized a lot, you start looking for little improvements. So at one point, you know, we got the low flow shower heads and installed those. And that's, you know, a savings of maybe three or four dollars a month. And we we wrapped our hot water heater in a blanket and, you know, like little things like that, like the little improvements that come later. And but those can be fun, too. And so it's kind of this continuous optimization is what we would call it in the engineering world. You're never sitting still. You're always trying to optimize something, even if it's just a small gain in your expenses.
0: So I always view the world through this lens of this pie chart of American household expenses. And, you know, 30 of this pie chart, 33% is housing, 17% is transportation, 13% is food. And then one third, 33% is everything else. Yeah. What I love about your story here is two of the things you discussed are one, your commute. You did not buy a second car and you turned that into a game basically where every day you'd read a Your Money mustache post or something interesting that would help you move towards your goal and then came up with solutions during that. So that's fantastic. And then with the food, you began to cook. And then you made smart, rational improvements one by one in the everything else category. To go back to this, though, I'd love to know kind of what happened with your housing situation. Did you make any changes there or is that one thing that you didn't touch because you were able to make such improvements everywhere else?
1: Yeah. So the house was one that I realized, you know, when you look at the pie chart and mint, the housing, the mortgage and everything else is always the biggest one. And then the transportation is also scaled up because of that 40 minute commute. So that's kind of like a, it has a multiple effect on it. So what we ended up doing, that house lost a ton of value in the 2007 market downturn. And so it got to the point where it was worth less than half of what we purchased it for. So we did not want to walk away from it, which we have friends and know people who have done that. We didn't feel right. It didn't sit well with us. And so we said, what else can we do when, when we realized we were done putting up with the 40 minute commute and we looked for, you know, some interesting opportunities. And one of the opportunities that came our way was we had a family member who wanted in on the low real estate prices in Florida to buy a retirement home, but they weren't ready to retire yet. And so they said, hey, if you guys house sit for us in this house that I want to buy that to eventually retire into, I'll let you guys live there rent free. I mean, we would pay for the electricity and the utilities, but we would basically live rent free and house sit for a year or two. And so we took him up on this opportunity because we said, well, that's really cool. It's a little bit closer to work and we're able to rent out our previous property and then also live uh, rent free in the new one. So that kind of gave us a a little kickstart that allowed us to save a little bit more aggressively for uh, the paying off of our mortgage on that first property. So I really wanted to pay off the mortgage on that first property because it was it was an 80 20 interest only 100% financing arm and the, which is pretty much, that's the the worst, that's the worst mortgage you can get. Now, remember, we knew nothing. We knew nothing when we bought this in 2007, we were kids, we were kids and we had no money. I think we had $300 to our names at the time, but we had offer letters that we were waving and that was good enough for underwriting back then. So we walked away from the closing of that house with an $8,000 incentive check from the builder. Right. Because the builder was like, hey, we want you to have this house. So so we walked away. No money down, no money in the bank. Eight thousand dollars in hand <laughs> and a set of keys. So that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the state of things in 2007. Well, help with and, furniture. Yeah,
3: yeah. So that, yeah, that did help. put that on a credit card
1: that helped with the furniture. It did. <laughs> Actually, no, I think we had borrowed some money from somebody else. We that money was gone very quick. And so, well, okay, we, kids, so. We, didn't, we didn't know. So so
3: that mortgage. That was, yes. Yeah. That was that a mortgage. really bad
1: mortgage. That mortgage that, was bad. Yes. Five years of interest only. So no principal payments were going to that mortgage at all. So um, I knew I, just, I wanted to get, get rid of it. The interest rates were insane, too, because the, the 20% portion, I think, was 11% interest rate and the 80% mortgage, I want to say, was like 7%. Around seven percent interest rate. And I just knew I wanted to get rid of this, right? And especially because at the time after the crash, you know, interest rates were super low. And there were, it was like we were trapped. And so what we did was when we moved into this family member's house, we rented out a previous one. And it was a horrible rental too. So forget the 1% rule. This thing was not cash flowing even when the mortgage was like paid off pretty much. Like it was a horrible, it had a high HOA, it had a low rent. So I think. We had a mortgage on it of sixteen hundred and fifty a month, and we were renting it for eight hundred and fifty a month. So it was just a horrible, horrible. Well, but it at least but helped. if you
3: weren't, yeah, if you weren't renting it out at all, you would be responsible for the entire yes. sixteen fifty. And yep. you know, somebody seven years removed from that situation might be like, "Well, well that's terrible. Why would you do that?" But when you were in two thousand seven, eight, nine, it was really. Difficult. I mean, Florida took a huge hit. Yeah,
1: we bought it for uh, a little under 200. And at the bottom of the market, it was valued at 70. So to give you an idea of how far that fell.
0: <sighs> no, but yeah. this this is a really key concept. So I, I, you know, yeah. you, you hadn't mentioned this before, so I wasn't sure if this was a big part of your strategy, but this is actually a major, major financial decision for you because you said eight fifty a month was what you're getting for rent, right? So regardless yes. of what you otherwise owe, you're able to now live for free, you mm-hmm. know, and you're getting an extra $850 per month. That's the equivalent right. of a hundred $150,000 investment in terms of cash flow that you're able to generate right. and save on that. Right. Because it's all before tax or after tax,
1: I'm sorry. It's just money that you're not spending. Uh, right. And that did help us. It, it helped us quite a bit. And, it, and what it did was we were basically trying to throw everything we could at that mortgage to get rid of that mortgage. And what it did was it allowed us to pay off that mortgage in under three years, which was really cool. It was something that We looking back, we realized we stayed in that house a little too long because what should have happened is when this particular family member, who I shall not name, but to keep the innocent innocent, when they (laughs) moved in to when they moved in with us we should have moved out immediately. But what happened was I kind of got greedy and I said, this is a great thing. Let's see how keep long I can keep it going. And so this person moved in with us. They had a full house of furniture and we, we should have moved out, you know, when they moved in, but we didn't, we tried to keep it going for another two years and we kind of lost our sanity a bit and potentially, you know, hurt the relationship with this family member, just because certain people have different lifestyles. This person was a Uh, a retired person who had a very different lifestyle than ours at the time and and so we we should have looking back in hindsight we should have left a little sooner but we did we got that mortgage paid off and we very very quickly found a new house much closer to work which we we live in now and we were able to actually we moved in with, with a mortgage here on this new house in 2016 and then just last year, 2017, we sold, we finally sold that, that rental property and used it to pay off the mortgage here on this house that we're in now. So we're now actually, we've been for maybe six or seven months now, completely debt-free, including mortgage, which was kind of a huge step for us. And it was, it felt really good to get to that point.
3: Nice.
0: When it comes to financial guidance, you gotta trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I wanna upgrade our wallets, Help you make it happen with a killer travel card.
3: Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com.
0: NerdWallet, finance smarter.
3: As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. netsuite.com slash bpmoney. Pretty good episode, right? While you were listening, you could have been getting paid rent with RentApp. Landlords love RentApp because it makes rent collection a breeze. RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. Setup is straightforward for renters. Landlords don't need to download anything. Both have peace of mind with a digital transaction history. Isn't it time you made landlording a little easier? Rent app, the best way to pay or collect rent. Learn more at rent.app/landlord. That's rent.app/landlord.
2: This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business? it might just change your life, just like it did mine, and I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: So let's go back to that rental just for a minute. You bought it for yeah. two hundred and forty. At the bottom, it was worth seventy. You had we bought this-
1: it for for maybe two hundred, a little under two hundred. It wasn't two
3: hundred and forty. Oh, oh okay. 200. I'm sorry, I misunderstood. So a little yeah. under two hundred. It was worth seventy. What did you sell it for? What did you say two years ago?
1: Yeah, we sold it two thousand and seven summer of 2007, we did not get back what we bought it for. We ended up selling for about 140, 145, but it was good enough for us. We actually had, one of the things that led us to sell was we had a a tenant from hell is what I call it. And it was a really bad rental experience that happened just in the, the year before that. And we kind of knew we needed a break from real estate. And the fact that it went up to 140, took us to, it, it doubled from its low. And we said, all right, I'm okay. It, it just also happened to be just enough to pay off the mortgage on the house that we're in. And so it was a psychological thing. We're like, all right, let's do this. Let's just clear it out, zero out the debt and see what it's like to just be completely debt-free for a little while. And so so we did that and it was really nice because then we could take this cash flow that previously went to mortgages and invest all of that every month, which was really nice. So we had a our snowball grew by another mortgage in size, uh, our savings snowball. So that was kind of cool. But but the wife, the wife is getting the itch again. She spends a lot of time on Zillow and on Trulia and And bigger pockets. Yes. And bigger pockets as well. (laughs) But, you know, from a mapping perspective, just looking at the area, looking at what's nearby, what are the pricing norms? Are there any good deals left that haven't been scooped up? And so she's getting the real estate itch again. I'm more of the passive guy. I really like the fact that Vanguard is never late on my dividend payments. I enjoy sitting (laughs) back and and relaxing. She's the more active. She, she really enjoys the hunt for the good property and kind of that kind of stuff. So I I see ourselves probably doing real estate again in the next few years. Personally, I'd like to wait until, you know, I think that a lot of the deals that were there a few years ago have dried up, but, but my wife's convinced there's still some good deals to be had. If you, if you're patient, I really know the markets. So that's kind of her, her area of play right now.
3: Well, I will agree with her. There are some good deals still out there. And when you are ready to rent properties again, I will send you a couple of different articles like how to rent your house, how to screen tenants, because tenant screening can really help make that tenant from hell not be your
1: tenant. It was crazy, and I mean, we even had a property manager at the time, which ideally should have shielded us from some of this. But this guy was perpetually late uh, on his payments. Now now he'd be in the in the maybe twenty five day late category, so it didn't quite roll into the thirty day. And so we'd charge him a fee every month, an extra you know hundred dollar late fee. And so he was paying it, and so we were okay. But then it got to the point where he was 35 days late and then 40, you know, the next month be 40 days late. And so it got to this point where it was like this slippery slope and only 30 we all,
3: days in a month.
1: Yeah. So we got to the slippery slope and it was around Christmas time and I wanted to push forward. I said, we need to evict. And my, my property manager was like, Oh, you never want to evict somebody on Christmas. Cause it was around Christmas time. I said, okay, we'll, we'll wait another month. Another month went by The guy was pleading with us, "Oh, you know, uh, I have more money coming in." But we knew something was fishy because every time we'd go to the property, he wouldn't want us to come inside. He wouldn't want us to go into the property. He'd be very secretive and, you know, close all the blinds and not let us see. And there was one point where I had to put up hurricane shutters for we, you know, we had a hurricane in 2016. And he's like, "Oh, I'll take them. I'll put them up. I'll put them down. You guys don't need to worry about it." Well. Long story short, he he abandoned the place. We finally did get the eviction notice. We go in; it was pretty trashed. It, it required a lot of cleanup. There was really gross stuff everywhere. He stole a lot of the interior doors. He stole the air registers, the smoke detectors. It was very bizarre. I I I really have to this day not experienced anything like this. But it was a very long process too. The whole thing from the time that. He started, you know, begging and pleading till the time that we we got him out was maybe four, four or five months. And then while the property was vacant and then it took us another two to three months to sell it after that. So it was it was the better part of a year, the whole, you know, the whole process. And we were just tired and ready to take a break, especially from that property, which had a high HOA that was unsustainable. It was far, you know, it took us 45 minutes to get to it if we had to do anything to improve it. So, so I think the break was warranted. I think we learned a lot from that property. It was definitely a good learning experience, but it also was something that really taught us (laughs) to to be careful with what you, (laughs) what you spend your money on. If we had rented for a year, which is I'll give my wife the credit. She kind of said out of college, we should rent for a year and learn the area because this is a new city. And I was like, no, we need to buy a house. If we'd rented for a year, we would have bought, you know, we would have missed the downturn and 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 bought in at the bottom. So it would have been night and day, but, you know, it was a great learning experience. We still were able to turn things around. So I just, I look at it as, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and how can I, how can I use what I've learned going forward to my advantage, so. Yeah, that's a good one.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah you how, don't hear how, enough of these failure stories or or, or horror stories oh, from real estate
1: I've got a lot pockets, of them so, yeah I've got a lot of them actually that's one of the things my blog is around is about telling people <laughs> all the ways that we've screwed up you know high spending, bad property choices, fancy you know new cars we've made a lot of mistakes, but we tend to learn from them, which is cool as we go so
0: well I'm um, um, so transitioning a little bit here can before we transition kind of to your leaving the job the workforce. Yeah, can you talk to yeah. can you talk a little bit about do you have any other investment strategies besides your, you know, paying off your mortgage and building up Vanguard index funds or is that pretty much the bulk of your investment portfolio?
1: That is right now the bulk of it. We we really are big into tax sheltered accounts, so 401k, IRAs, HSAs are great. We max those out every year. So we're really big on on maxing all that out. And then currently the, the overflow goes into the Vanguard, just, uh, you know, a normal taxable brokerage. Uh, but that's the bulk. Now that we've divested from that uh, rental property, we, we sold that rental property. So it's really just our investment portfolios and our paid off house that we have. That's basically our strategy right now is just having, you know, enough saved up to live passively. And yeah, that's, that's the gist of it.
0: Also, and then one more question before we get to the transition out of work. Why, yeah. you know, you did you don't mention very much about your career during this time period Were you just, did you feel like you were fairly optimized on in the income front or were you uh, just not, yeah. not really interested in finding ways to
1: earn more versus spend less? Yeah, that's a great question because the math does work both ways, right? It's the same. If you can double your income, you're going to, you you know, it's the same effect as cutting your expenses. It, you, you really can save a lot either way. The nice thing about Focusing on the expenses, one is you kind of get that triple value where every dollar that you reduce on the expenses also reduces what your expenses are going to be in FI, right? Because the main assumption is your spending is the same once you hit FI. And so that can help you lower your lifestyle a little bit so that you can maybe uh, reach FI even sooner. But the other reason is I think you kind of hinted at it we had pretty decent salaries there was less room to optimize on the income front than there was on the expenses front we had so much room for improvement on the expenses side so we just didn't focus as much on the income it's not to say we weren't gradually uh, increasing i i did switch jobs in my search for purpose i thought maybe switching to a different company would bring me some more happiness in my life and you know it was short term it did for a few months but it also brought with it a nice 15 percent salary bump, which was nice. So I do I do tell people because a lot of people tend to stay with their same company for a lot of years in the engineering career. And so if you can jump around every three or four years, it it, it is good for your for your salary to do so. But we were at that point where if if we wanted another big bump in the income side, we would have to probably move somewhere where to a city where maybe the incomes were a little higher or take on some additional part-time work or side hustle. And that was kind of the problem is our jobs as we increased and in engineering, they have levels. And so as you go up each level in, in engineering, you get more responsibility, which essentially equates to longer working hours. And so... <laughs> our work-life balance as we, you know, advanced in these companies got worse and worse and worse. And you can see this, you can see this in ourselves. Our health was taking a sacrifice. We weren't focusing as much time on health and fitness. And, you know, we didn't have as much time and as much free time to kind of enjoy each other. And so your stress levels go up, your health level goes down. And so it's kind of like if I were to try to Uh, chase the income side even more, it it would have eaten into the little time that I already had. So I kind of was like, all right, I see it. I see a light at the end of the tunnel with the current plan of, you know, reducing expenses and assuming the regular cost of living adjustments on the income side. Let's just get there. Let's just pedal to the metal and see if we can, if we can get there without burning out. And uh, it was close. (laughs) It was to the (laughs) point where I was super stressed when I finally did pull away from the full-time job.
3: So did your job know about your blog?
1: No, no. Did they know about your FI plans? No. So that was an interesting thing. I, towards the last year while I was there, I I knew that I wanted to quit, but I didn't exactly know when. I didn't know when I was going to, because there's kind of this, this thing where you could always stay a little longer. Right, so it was like, well, if I stay, if I stay until September, I'm gonna get my 401k vesting, which is worth like another, you know, fifteen thousand dollars. So I want to do that. And it's like, well, if I stay till October, I'll get my annual bonus. So that's good. That's another five thousand. It's like, well, if I stay till November, I get, you know, and suddenly you're like, oh, well, if I stay till January, I could max out my front load my IRAs for the next year. And so there's just this never ending. And that's what I kind of learned is that it just didn't end. And so I, I just knew, I knew I needed to leave, but I didn't know when I. I was going to. And so my work situation was getting a little more stressful and my coworkers really didn't know anything about my, they knew that I was kind of a frugal guy, but they didn't know about my blog. They, uh, they didn't know, uh, maybe I had one or two friends who were kind of in the loop, maybe, maybe in the inside that knew, but for the majority of them, they didn't know. And so when I finally did leave, the story that I told everybody, which is, which is true. I, I just told everybody that I needed a break. I didn't specify how long the break would be. I didn't specify, you know, what, what I was doing. You know, if I would, ne- if I, I didn't want to say I'm going to retire, cause that sounds weird. And a lot of people have a hard time understanding that for somebody in their th- early thirties to say that. But so what I did is I said, I needed a break and everybody kind of knew I needed a break because it was super stressed out. And that tended, that, that was the, uh, the story that I went with and the response that I got from almost everybody was, man, I wish I could take a break. That was, that seemed to be the (laughs) universal response. And I wanted to say like, you can, you you, you can, but uh, you know, I didn't want to open up the can of worms, but that, that was kind of what my story was as I was getting ready to to leave was just that I needed a break. And, and I really did. I didn't realize until a few months after I left my job, how much residual stress was left over and that followed me home and that actually stayed in my life months after I quit. So it was just wild. Well, can you talk about that? What, what
0: did your life look like before and after this transition? I mean, it hasn't been that long, has
1: it? No. So, uh, I finally quit in November, uh, of 2017. So just a few months ago, three, three months and change now. And leading up to the, the, the point where I quit, I was very stressed and my wife started to notice it even more than I did. And she would say like, you, you are not a happy person right now. You know, you, you are not the fun person that I knew. And, and it was, you know, I was on a program that was very behind. Uh, it was behind for about a year behind schedule, uh, over cost over budget and behind schedule. And so everything was rushing, right? So it was just continual every day you were rushing, no matter how much work you did or how good that work was, it wasn't enough because we we were behind, and so I had tried to move to a different program. I had asked about getting more people on my program to help me, uh, moving to different programs, and and the way that it worked at this particular company is if if a you know if a ship was going down in terms of a program, you had to stay on board with the ship and you had to do everything you could. And I could have switched to another company, but the problem is I knew that I only needed six months to a year more in my working career. And in the engineering world, you really don't want to sign on with a whole new company and do a whole new onboarding process when you know you're going to leave them in six months. That's kind of frowned upon. And because they're making an investment in in you. And I kind of live in a smaller town where the companies talk. And so I didn't want to, I didn't want to get blacklisted forever. You know, I didn't want to burn any bridges or anything. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to fight this out. I'm going to stay on this program and do the best I can. But it got to a point where my wife and I, I think we were It was the end of October and we were going on a walk and I was just complaining and complaining and complaining. It was a Sunday afternoon and she, she looked at me and she said, you should quit tomorrow. And she just was very specific. She's like, you should put in your two weeks notice tomorrow. And it was that so specific out of nowhere, because I was just ranting, you know, venting about work. And it was just so specific that I looked at her and I said, I need to do this. The, because it was almost like the Band-Aid, you know, where we, you know you just want to rip it off and and not make a bit. And so it was just so surprising and so out of nowhere that she was so specific and said tomorrow that I couldn't play that game anymore of like, what if this, what if that? I just knew like, yeah, I need to just do this tomorrow and get it over with. And so I did not know I was going to I was going to put in my two weeks notice until a few hours <laughs> before I did it. And I didn't sleep a wink that night. I was so nervous, just not nervous because I thought like Financially, it was more of just this idea that you're going to walk away from a very lucrative career. And it was very nerve wracking. But immediately when I put in the two weeks notice, just this weight just lifted off of my shoulders. And uh, it was pretty amazing. When I finally did leave, they actually convinced me to stay on a little longer to help train up some new people and everything else. But they also finally offered to move me to another program and all of the things that I had asked for many times, <laughs> which uh, you have to be willing to call the bluff though. You can't go in, and in there and threaten to leave without really meaning it. And, and so they were like, oh, we can give you a three month sabbatical. And I, I looked at them and I said, I need more than three months. <laughs> I need some time <laughs> off. And so, so when I left, it took a few months for me to realize that the stress from work was still with me. And the story that I gave in the presentation that you guys saw was that I was making the bed, I think in my guest room on a Tuesday and like 10 o'clock in the morning, I had nowhere to be, nothing to do. And I was like stressing myself out, rushing to get this bed made. And I'm like, I'm, I'm frustrated. And I stopped and my like heart rate is up. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I rushing? to make this bed like and so i was it was like i was behind schedule you know from work it was like nothing <laughs> i could do was was fast enough but, you know and so that's when i realized like wow i need to consciously just decompress and take a few months. And I had toyed with the idea of, you know, maybe I want to do some part-time work from home, or maybe I want to do, you know, a ramp down, maybe do, you know, go to a reduced work week or something in in the software engineering. And so my wife kind of made this rule, and she's like, no, no work for you for six months. You really need to de-stress and and come down. And so and so I I'm like kind your of wife glad. a lot. Yeah, I'm kind of glad <laughs> she kind of set the rules for me and uh, she's been hinting now like oh maybe you want to do something to to make a little income on the side and this and that and so my goal is to kind of do fun stuff stuff that i enjoy and maybe make it profitable do something that i enjoy and it's not necessarily because i need the money i think it's more of in the sense of i just like to feel like i'm doing something fun, something something that brings enjoyment. My wife and I also tend to disagree on exactly what our FI number is. So my number that I'm basing our FI off of is a little bit uh, under $30,000 a year. And hers is a little closer to 35. And so we disagree because I say, look, we, we've been spending 30 these past few years. We're clearly at 30. And she's like, no, I want to be closer to 40 because I want to have I want to have this ability to do more, have a more lavish lifestyle and, and, you know, go out to eat when I want to and this and that. And I I said, well, you already do those things. And so we, we kind of go back and forth. So she enjoys her job though right now. And so she's kind of working that extra year or two. She wants to build the, the extra cushion on the, uh, on the income side. And so I said to her, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're enjoying what you do and, you know, and you like it, then, then. I mean, that's, that's the the ultimate goal, right. To find something that you love and at the same time you get paid for it. That's pretty great. Um, but I'm yeah, it is also, great. I'm also trying to convince her to like, if not quit, then at least reduce her work week and like have more time at home because I want to have more fun, like with her, like go do, you know, more things, uh, you know, with her, which is, you know, part of the fun. So I'm slowly trying to, to convince her.
3: <laughs> sure. Well, so I have a question. You were a software engineer. Are you Ruby on Rails by any chance? Cause we need a Ruby on Rails programmer. Um, oh, man. I've
1: done a little it bit with so Ruby. Much fun. I've done a little bit with Ruby. I, it was not my focus. I was a Java C, C++ guy, but okay. you know uh, it's not something that I couldn't learn pretty easily. I've used it, but it was more like collegiate level. So like college projects and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I, I could totally be uh be interested in in hearing more about this opportunity.
3: <laughs> well, it we we are real estate focused. You'd have yeah. to start loving real estate again.
2: Yeah, I, I don't. So I don't. Well, Great. Right, there you, you go. The we
3: state. got you a new job. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Well, should we move on to our oh. famous four here? Yeah. Famous
3: for the new famous four.
0: The new famous awesome. four. The bigger okay. pockets money show famous for.
3: Yes. Okay, Scott. I have to start this because you want to do number four. Yes. So, Joel. What is your favorite finance book?
1: So this book was maybe more than just finance. It covered finance a little bit. But for me, the book that changed everything was uh, Your Money or Your Life, uh, Joe Dominguez and Vicki Robin. And the financial specific side of it maybe is a little out of date today, although I hear they are going to be releasing a new version of this book that's updated. But the version that I read was talking about like, you know putting all your money in in bonds at you know 10% and i was like man that sounds great if i could do that now <laughs>
3: <laughs> sounds solid 10% bonds it
1: sounds wonderful but uh but i think overall the message of that book of equating your money and your your hours in your life to like life energy this kind of idea that you could either be doing your life here you know putting your energy in here or putting it into something that actually is meaningful to you and that really opened my eyes quite a bit and it, it did have the whole concept right of the the big picture concept of you can get to a point where you find what enough is and I think that's the key to a lot of the financial independence discussions is what is your enough and it's different for everybody for every family uh, where that enough line is but that's the key of finding it because you can go way past that enough line which is what we did and still not necessarily be happy because your life energy is being used on stuff you don't want to you don't want to use it on so yep. that that book was uh, very meaningful to to the wife and I.
3: That's a great
0: book. Well, going right along with that, I mean, you mentioned so many mistakes that you've made with money over the past couple of years. But what what do you think was the single biggest one of those mistakes that you made?
1: So it would have to be the the uh, the house that we bought in two thousand seven, the the townhome. And I have a blog post about it where I actually run the numbers and see what this, I call it adventures in real estate. And so I, the adventure ended up costing us, we lost about $150,000 on that adventure. Wow. Even with even with the rental income recouping and even with the uh, sale of the property and everything else, that includes total cost and interest, everything else. Uh, it was a $150,000 lesson. Does
0: that include the so. $8,000 you walked away with at closing?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, have, I had to think about it for a minute. I have all the line items on the on the blog post that shows like everything. And yes, yes, it does. So awesome. it was we'll a look. very expensive. Yeah. We'll have to link so to that post in
3: the show notes here. Yes, yeah. yes. But as a real estate enthusiast, I would like to point out that this was at least in, in large part due to the timing.
1: We did. I mean, yeah, we had perfectly wrong timing. I mean, yeah, you couldn't nobody. Have, yeah, nobody this should be a textbook case, right? Because you can't make it any worse if you try it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and nobody in 2007 was like, I know next year's going to suck. So I'm going to buy a ton of real estate right now. Like it just kept going up. And before that, real estate didn't go down. Yeah, that like,
1: was the popular if- opinion is that you? it's going to keep going, which, you it know, was- I should have researched. But yeah.
3: Well, yeah. and, but if you would have researched it, you would have seen that, yes, there's pockets of the country where real estate goes down. But for the most part, real estate does go up and always goes up. And at worst, it flattens off. So yeah. to have, you know, to, to do all this research, you would have bought the house anyway.
1: Yeah. No, it was it was wild. It was, an, it was a roller coaster.
0: But in and spite it, of that, you are sitting here 10 years later, retired.
1: Retired. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's taking true. a break,
0: whatever you want to call it. You're you're here. You made it in spite of that. That is phenomenal, and it should be a a bit of hope and inspiration for people that are trying to repeat that. You know, even in the yeah. worst possible
1: start, you can do this. Yeah, and and a lot of people say, well, you know, do you think it was? And, and I get this a lot. Do you think it was the fact that you both were engineers that allowed you to accomplish this? You know, and I said, well, no. Mike, my, my household income never went above. Maybe one hundred and eighty thousand dollars total. Uh, that was with the rental income coming in. And so, if somebody were to do it at half the speed, if somebody were to do this uh, with with just one person working, they they could potentially do the same thing, maybe in the eight to ten year time frame instead of the the five year time frame. But it's still doable, even even with these mistakes. Uh, it, it really is. I had a coworker that said, "Oh, well, you know, you you guys can do this because you're." so you're making so much money. And I said, well, I said, well, look at X, Y, and Z. And I pointed to other coworkers that both had two, two spouses, both working. And, and I said, how come they're not doing it? You know, you can spend the money just, just as easily at any, at any stage of income, you can spend all your money and it just gets easier. You know, you, you find luckily we, we weren't actually in that, you know, once you get to the 250, 300, $400,000 household income spot, because then your friends and, and, and peers are buying boats and they're buying golf club memberships and they're buying uh, second houses, right? Your, your summer house and your winter house. And there's always something that can eat your money if you don't save it. So I think it works at across the whole spectrum. The savings Ugh.
3: rate, it just it doesn't lie. That's a great quote. There's always something that can eat your money. Uh, okay, so what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? Just discovered the concept of FI, just discovered you know, just started working. What's your best piece of advice?
1: So don't get overwhelmed. It's a lot of stuff to, to take in and it can feel like you are really far away from the finish line. But what my wife and I did, we, we worked together as a team. We kind of made it a game and we just, we broke it down into small actionable pieces. One thing a month that we could improve. Right. And sometimes we'd feel really aggressive and we say, well, let's do one thing every week. Let's find another thing to improve. But we we broke it down into small pieces. And I think that's the key, because when you look at it as a whole, how do I get from from here to there? It's really overwhelming. And uh, a lot of people that hear our story say, well, wow, it sounds like you guys just turned it around overnight. And I mean, yeah, five, five years is is a quick turnaround time, but it's still gradual. It still took us a year to learn how to cook. It still took us two years to get our savings rate even close to, you know, being above that 50% mark. And so this was gradual. This was not something that, that happened overnight and you kind of build this momentum with you as you go. And so I would say my, my best piece of advice would probably be take your time. It doesn't have to be overnight. Don't get overwhelmed and just start making small changes uh, because they all add up, and that's the that's the key here. Is everything adds up? Every little expense uh, adds adds towards your goal.
0: And one thing I'll throw in here is this story that you've been telling this whole time. You track the numbers. You went back and did all the numbers, yeah. and there's actually three graphs which I'd love to link to in the show notes. In addition to if you have a blog post on it, but where you, we show, yeah. you know, your spending going from over a hundred thousand to eighty to sixty to thirty. 000. And then there's a corresponding graph that shows the increase in net worth uh, as that spend as that savings level declines. And then there's a yeah. third graph that shows your expenses, your investment income and your your target that you're trying to hit for your investment income. And so you just yeah. watch these three graphs kind of merge together fitting what you just kind of described is kind of really cool way to look at look at things.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very revealing watching the expenses just, you know, it kind of slopes down uh, at like this 45 degree angle. And then you see the <laughs> asset value do the same thing in in the reverse. It, I mean, it's it's striking. It does speak for itself. Mm-hmm. The the charts, I think I first showed them in the presentation that I gave at camp where I met you guys. Yep. I just published those charts for the first time actually over on the Get Rich Slowly blog, over on JD's blog. Uh, Ooh, he had nice. me on as a as a guest, uh, post. And so those charts are there actually right now for, I haven't actually put them on my own blog yet. Awesome. We'll have to link to wherever they're available. Yeah. Hot off the presses. Yeah.
3: Yeah. We'll link over there. Um, one of the things before Scott gets to his next question, we met Joel at Campify and he gave this amazing presentation and he's, he had this line that really stuck out. What is the worst that could happen if you quit your job?
1: Yeah. So the way I always tell people is that my worst case scenario is everybody else's everyday scenario right? So going back to work, right? That's like the end of the world. Oh no, sequence of return risk or, oh no, you know, a a big, you know, market downturn or, oh no, it turns out we actually spend 40 a year instead of 30. That's our real number. Like my worst case scenario is, is everybody else's everyday scenario, which is going back to work. And that kind of ties perfectly to the other kind of mantra that I've been living by lately, which is when you are close to financial independence, every job is a high paying job because you've already got that giant fraction of your lifestyle covered. And so everything else is like this gravy. So I could do something fun. If I go back to work, something low paying, something low stress as well. So I could be, I I joke about being like a boat driver at Disney world or, you know, or I could be something, you know, I could, I could make coffee at a local coffee shop. And even if it's closer to minimum wage, it's still gravy. I can still max out a 401k with it. It means, you know, it's, it's, it's still a high paying quote unquote job. And so if I ever do go back uh, into full-time, I, I will never go back to full-time. If I ever go back to work, it would be something fun, something that I enjoyed uh, where I could work with people that I enjoy. And, you know, the money wouldn't necessarily be the deciding factor. But yeah, that's the worst case scenario, which shouldn't worry people so much, because I know some people want that. They want that 100 percent certainty. I want, you know, four percent rule is too conservative. I need three percent rule because I I want 100 percent, a 99 percent chance of success. And it's like, well, well, maybe you're working too many years. Like that's the reverse end of that risk, right, is maybe you worked two or three more years than you needed to. And that's scarier to me, given what it was doing to my health and sanity.
0: I'm very close to hundred percent certain that in an mar- event of a market downturn, you're better off than your colleagues who have very little wealth.
1: Yes. It's the so. whole playing field level is yeah. level, you know, it goes down equally. So yeah, exactly.
0: So I have one more, one more final four question here for you, which is what is your favorite joke to tell at parties?
3: <laughs>
1: so Scott, you and I have very similar senses of humor. Excellent. Uh, and uh, Hold on. So I want to
3: turn off my microphone.
1: <laughs> I think you'll enjoy these. Uh, Mindy, I'm sorry in advance. Uh, so this is one of my favorites. So, so, uh, did you hear that, uh, Walmart's given away all their dead batteries? No. Yeah. They're free of charge. <laughs> oh.
3: <laughs> That's a very positive
0: joke. I like it.
3: Oh. <laughs> uh,
1: I got, I got, all got bonus, every day. a bonus one, uh, Scott that for you, uh, what's the best possible gift that you can receive? I don't know. What is it? It's a broken drum you just can't beat it ah Uh, i love it (laughs) (laughs) these are bad uh my wife my wife hates these jokes i always knew these jokes you you call them mindy i think you call them dad jokes they're dad jokes i always knew them as uh so my friend growing up when we were teenagers uh, he had a stepdad named Bill and Bill would always say these jokes and we called them Bill jokes and so that's like how we know them, where these are Bill jokes and uh, I just, uh, I think they're great nobody can stand them but me and, what has, and Scott too so. What
0: has uh, eight, eight eyes, eight legs and eight arms? I don't know, what? Eight pirates <laughs> <laughs> I just heard that one at the uh, BP meetup we had uh, last week <laughs> someone uh, uh, came and visited and was like, I got to tell you a joke. Here it is. I was like, yes, I'm telling that on the next podcast. So there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember uh, who
3: told you the joke, Scott? Uh,
0: no, I'll have to go and, uh, and, and look through my notes and remember, but
3: <laughs> oh, I wanted to give them I'm credit. I'm sorry. I'm not giving credit to
0: whoever told me this great joke.
3: <laughs> okay. Moving on, Joel, where can people find out more about you? Yeah so uh, I
1: blog over on Financial 180 is the name of the blog the the website is fi180fi180.com so the numbers 180 And I also have a Facebook that you can link to from there. I have a Twitter and yeah, I try to keep in touch with people and uh, there's a contact email on there. Uh, I I really do read a lot of my emails that that readers send in and everything. And I enjoy the community aspect of the blog a a lot. And so I encourage everybody, yeah, uh, ask me questions, you know, shoot me emails with some of your sample scenarios with like your lifestyle. And I can help, I can help with, you know, ideas of how to, how to improve things, how to shape costs, how to shake up life, your lifestyle around it to improve things. So I really enjoy the, the reader interaction. So I encourage everybody to to come check out, uh, check out the blog and hear more about all the horrible mistakes that we made along the way so that you can avoid them yourselves. Awesome.
3: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time for, for taking time out of your apparently not very busy day. Uh, (laughs) now that you're unemployed. To talk to us. I really appreciate, I love your story. I love that, that line. I just, I can't say it enough. Your worst case scenario is everybody else's every single day. So if this is an option, if somebody is interested in financial independence, go for it. Cause what's the worst that can happen? You have to get a job. You already have a job. Like, yeah.
1: It really should inspire people to kind of be bold, go for what they want to do. And uh, it's really not anything to be uh, afraid of. I know that there's a lot of fear around financial dependence, particularly lately with the a lot of talk of sequence of return risk and talk of, you know, uh, doing something wrong. You know, mistakes happen. I make them all. I'll blog about them. I'll probably continue (laughs) to make more. Uh, But you get through them and you just keep going. And uh, that's part of the that's part of the journey. It's part of the fun.
0: I love it. This is this is I. I love everything about what you've done and how you (laughs) talk about it and what you're going to do. Uh, Thank you so
1: much. This is awesome. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure uh, getting on here and getting to chat with you.
3: Okay. Well, we don't want to keep you from your uh, very busy day of doing <laughs> making the bed.
1: <laughs> I do. I do have hobbies, right? I I I write music in my downtime. I I I do uh, write and play music, which is fun. Uh, I write. I've got some ambitious goals for books down the way uh, that I want to write, and so uh, so I'm, I'm I'm having fun. I'm not just sitting around. I think the joke from camp is that I'm not just sitting around in my underwear playing video games. <laughs> I am not doing that. Did you that wear was, pants today? Was maybe. Yes, I'm wearing uh, pants right now, and and maybe that period. <laughs> maybe that period of, of video games in the underwear was a week or two max. That was ma- maximum. Okay. What, what well, that's you important to have. I think it is actually to, to just have no no care, and I think it can help recalibrate you to, to take on some new work ethic.
3: <laughs> well, okay, for- Scott. Shall we get out of here? Let's get out of here. Okay, Joel, thank you so much. Thank you, guys.
0: So that was uh, Joel from FI 180. Again, I, I was so excited going into it, and it lived up to all the expectations I had in my mind. It was just he covered every base of personal finance, income, spending, investing, and the transition out of paying work uh, into the life that he's designing. And there's a lot of uh, talk and uh, the mentality behind that. I, I thought it was a fantastic show. What do you think, Mindy?
3: I love that show. I love Joel's statement. I, I know I keep saying this over and over, but I love that. What's the worst thing that could happen? You have to go back to work. Your worst case scenario is everybody else's everyday life. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you're thinking about joining the FI community, if you're thinking about going down this path, start, start today, start tomorrow, start today. Don't start tomorrow. Start today. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and if and if you listeners are interested in any of the references that we cited, please be sure to check out the show notes. You can find them on BiggerPockets.com and search for this uh, money, the Bigger Pockets Money Show, show number eleven.
3: The quick link is biggerpocketscom slash show 11
0: Ah, that's what I was looking for. Yes, thank you, <laughs> Mindy. Um, and so there's some great resources there. I definitely encourage you to at least check out those uh, that that link that's going to be on JD Roth's site uh, for uh, with those graphs just showing what mathematically happened as a result of the story that Joel just told us. Definitely go check that out. And then I think for us our homework next is going to be let's do can we find a similar story to Joel but with someone that was married? And had kids at the same time. So Joel did this with a two-income, no kids household. Can we find someone that's done a similar, uh, had a similar approach and similar successes, maybe a similar turnaround that has already had the kids? You know, that would be an awesome guest. So if you know anybody like that, please invite them to apply uh, to be a guest on the show. We'd love to hear from them.
3: Yes, and if you have questions about this particular episode or any other episodes, you can go into the forums. There is a special BiggerPockets Money podcast forum where we can dis- where you can discuss uh, each individual episode. So, we'd love it if you could check us out over there too. biggerpockets.com/forums.
0: Awesome. And then we are still a new show. So we would really, really appreciate any ratings or reviews on iTunes or anywhere else that you are listening to this podcast. Those mean a lot and we really do read them all. So we appreciate every single review.
3: Yes. Thank you, Scott. Shall we head out of here so we can uh, not play video games?
0: Let's head out of here. It's been a, it's been, this is a long show. So uh, I thought it was a great one though.
3: Yeah, it was a long show and thank you for sticking with us. So from episode 11 of the Bigger Pockets Money Show, this is Mindy Jensen over and out.